0: This is a recording from the BC Humanist Association's online event, A Public Good. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and to subscribe to this podcast. So before we begin, I want to acknowledge uh, that Adriana, Teal, and I all live and work on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wissanik peoples, whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day, and none of us were invited to be on this shared territory, uh, although we are grateful to be here. Um, Given the turnout tonight, everyone is muted, for this portion at least. Uh, We will have a section for questions at the end of the event, so if you have any, um, you can raise your hand when I ask for questions, or you could just pop in the chat anytime, and our presenters might get to them uh, in their talk at the beginning. Um, but yeah, and everyone, please be respectful of each other in your questions, as always. Um, we're recording this talk tonight, so you can find it afterwards on YouTube and on our podcast. Um, and our future events line up uh, at the end of the month. We have an collaboration with another humanist group in canada non-religion in a complex future which is happening on march 18th Um, and more information about that event will be available on monday so watch our newsletter and social media for that release Um, and of course the work that we do with the report that this event is based on and of course this event itself could not be possible without your donations and your membership and funding so please uh, i'll be dropping a link to that in the chat Um, please consider donating if you like what you see here and want to keep helping us keep it up. Um, And of course, if you haven't read the report that our speakers are going to be speaking on and poured their heart and souls into, I will also be dropping a link to that in the chat. So please check it out. Um, And with that, I'll pass things off to Adriana, uh, who I think is going to start us off tonight. Sorry, Adriana, can
1: you, are you able to unmute yourself? Yes, now I'm unable to unmute. Okay, awesome. Um, Hi, I'm Adriana. Um, Okay, so um, governments grant have the ability to grant tax exemptions. Um, They use this as a public policy tool, and um, it's usually used in order to support organizations that provide services that benefit the public in some way. And the idea is that by granting organizations exemptions, it means that on taxes, it means that they have the ability to allocate more resources uh, to public services, such as um, clubs, sports teams, uh, childcare services, et cetera. Um, However, groups that receive um, these tax exemptions in general should not be groups that discriminate um, in contravention to the Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms or the BC Human Rights Codes. Um, Additionally, um, groups that receive these um, exemptions also shouldn't be groups that are breaking the law as well. Um, So within our research, we attempted to look at two kinds of tax exemptions. The first being permissive or statutory exemptions, and I think I can share my screen now, so we're just going to pull up a fun diagram, which was in the report. Um, Yeah, so the first kind is statutory exemptions. Um, These exemptions are granted automatically uh, by the provincial government, um, and this includes uh, places of worship. Um, And you'll see within our diagram, um, the yellow um, building is a place of public worship, a place where um, religious activities actually take place. Um, These are granted automatically by the provincial government. The second kind are permissive tax exemptions. So these are granted by municipalities. Um, So municipal governments have the ability to apply an exemption um, based on, Existing criteria outlined in legislation. Um, so, if you'll look on the diagram, um, the kind of gray field area is, for example, a parking lot or a field, um, or um, the darker green building, which is a, an adjoining hall, so not a place where worship directly takes place. Um, these are able to be taxed or given permissive tax exemptions by the municipality. Um, in most cases, um, municipal organizations apply for these exemptions based on um, different criteria and uh, municipal governments are given the discretion to decide the application process um, the benefits tests caps on how much of an exemption um, groups are getting time limits, etc. Um, yes, um, However, um, we noted that there were some discrepancies um, between places of public worship getting exemptions in both STEs and PTEs and other groups. Um, First off, it's the idea that um, places of public worship are automatically granted um, public or permissive tax exemptions or statutory exemptions. Um, It's assumed that a place of public worship automatically provides a public good, which um, is not necessarily true. Um, additionally, another issue um, we come across is that certain places um, may be discriminatory and, and a common example is um, groups, uh, religious groups refusing to um, rent out um, halls or adjacent spaces um, to groups such as uh, those looking to host a LGBTQ plus wedding. Um, So in order to look at this further, we decided to conduct a survey. Um, So we began with calculating the statutory tax exemptions, the SDEs, um, and we calculated this using data available from BC assessments. And from there, we were able to find the amount of revenue that would have been foregone, that was foregone, um, had these places of worship been um, expected to pay the full amounts. Um, Additionally, we calculated the number of permissive tax exemptions and we did this by individually going into. um, Each municipality's website and pulling out their uh, the numbers out of their annual reports so at the end of each year. um, municipalities create a report and it's kind of a summary of um, their financial status what activities they've undertaken, etc, and these typically contain um, the amount of exemptions that are granted to each group. Um, So in total, we were able to find um, that $45.9 million um, were exempted for statutory exemptions going to places of public worship. Um, We also found that uh, for permissive tax exemptions, $12.5 million um, were exempted. Um, Now there was some variety between um, the different places and the amount of exemptions that were received For example, um, City of Delta was granted granted 1.3 million in permissive tax exemptions, whereas other places uh, chose to grant zero. Um, We didn't look at the reasoning why behind that in this report, however, um, in future studies, we're hoping to look at uh, different public benefits tests and to see how uh, this kind of aligns with the amount of exemptions that are being granted. Um, so in total, we found that $58.4 million in exemptions were going to places of public worship when we totaled both the SDEs and the PTE calculations. And I will pass this off to Teal.
2: Awesome, thanks Adriana, yeah. And, and so just to pick up on some of the discussion around these and this builds on what Adriana was already mentioning. Um, but generally speaking, these kinds of tax exemptions are designed to go to organizations that provide a public benefit. So if you look at the list of of the types of categories of organizations that can receive these, there are things like hospitals and schools and service organizations and historic sites and farms. And one of the challenges that you get is that there's this sort of assumption that places of worship will, oh, Adrian, I was going to say maybe stop sharing your screen and I can, uh, we can, uh, yeah. Um, But places of worship necessarily provide a public benefit without any kind of oversight or evaluation as to whether that is actually the case. And so, there are a couple situations where this might not be the case, and so I want to highlight some of the issues that surround exemptions. And it's a combination of permissive and statutory exemptions. So I'll kind of blend them as we go through the conversation because the two kind of interrelate. Um, but the first aspect is that of private clubs. So the thing about permissive and statutory tax exemptions is they're support organizations that provide a public benefit. But what we find is some recipients operate as private clubs. So, for example, a place of worship may only cater to co-religionists or to parishioners. And in that way, they're operating as a private club. They're not a, they're not open to the public. Some places will have contingent services. And by that I mean you have to participate in their religious services or in an aspect of religious services in order to receive a service. Um, and so, for example, um, a good one there is uh, St. Anne's Anglican Church in Parksville um, had a pray and stay program where people who were experiencing homelessness could Crash out in the hot, in the uh, in the place of worship overnight, but in order to do that, um, they had to participate in a nightly prayer vigil. Uh, now, the place of worship insisted this was minimal, but at the same time, that seems problematic in that the state is subsidizing an activity where people are being forced to participate in religious activity to receive a service like shelter at night. Um, That church, by the way, received $7,932 of permissive tax exemptions in 2019. So we are talking about significant amounts of money and those services are not available to people who would not want to participate in that prayer service. Um, So either it's a form of coercion or you're excluding people in that case. Another aspect of private clubs are insular groups. So some religious communities are insular by their very nature. They close themselves off from the world. A really good example of this is the Exclusive Brethren, which it's kind of implied in the name, is an evangelical Christian organization, otherwise called the Plymouth Brethren, and they follow the doctrine of separation. The doctrine of separation basically is where a group isolates themselves from the world because it's seen as worldly, um, or as they described on their own site, Um, the world or society is a system of sin and lawlessness under the domination of satan Um, so welcome to that that world i suppose Um, but the the, the thing there is that this organization necessarily separates themselves from society so you have tax exemptions that are going to supporting organizations that provide a public benefit going to an organization that is not interested in benefiting the public by the nature of their, their religious practices they're of course entitled to have a closed off group like that but to receive public subsidies seems problematic Um, And that's kind of um, an aspect that we see again and again. But these groups, uh, exclusive brethren organizations, receive tons of permissive tax exemptions and statutory tax exemptions. Um, So, for example, the Part II Gospel Hall in Abbotsford got $4,400 in 2019. Uh, The West Richmond Gospel Hall received $8,869 in in permissive tax exemptions from Richmond um, in 2019. So this is a bit of a problem because you're literally funneling tax funding to a private organization. And as Adriana mentioned, um, we wanna have a benefits test. What the BCHA is proposing is a benefits test to ensure that recipients are actively benefiting the community. But on top of that, it's really important that you have a benefits test and that the benefits test is followed. Um, Because for example, Parksville, that same place with the, uh, that has a church with a pray and stay policy, has a permissive tax exemption policy that says that services and activities should be equally available to all residents. So in this case, they have a benefits test, but they're not applying it. So it's as important, uh, probably more important to apply a benefits test as is to have one. And, you know, what's other another interesting side point here is with respect to places of worship operating as private clubs is the issue of... The percentage of people who attend these organizations. You know, municipalities should have the ability to decide how best to benefit their community. But what we see is a decline in regular participation in religious services in Canada. Such that um, in 2020, about 11% of people attended a place of worship on a weekly basis. That's down from uh, 19, or that's down from 30% in 1996, um, and 67% in 1946. So we have declining participation and. If you're a municipality, you want to sit back and say, how can we maximize the benefit to our community through our tax exemption programs. And if you have a perhaps a a place of worship that only has 12 members and they're receiving thousands of dollars in tax exemptions, perhaps that money is more effectively spent maximizing benefit in another way. So the second one, and Adrian has already hinted at this as well, um, is the aspect of some recipients of permissive tax exemptions and statutory tax exemptions exclude and discriminate. Now, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms says that you cannot discriminate against people based on their race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, mental or physical ability, and that applies to the government. So private individuals can set up their own bigoted clubs if they want to, but ultimately the government can't, has to follow the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. They can't discriminate on those bases. So if you have an organization that's operating as a private club that's excluding people on these grounds, they shouldn't be receiving money from the government because the government can't discriminate. Otherwise, what you're basically doing is you're creating discrimination with more steps involved and it's still discrimination. And unfortunately, it's not hard to think of an example of places of worship that might exclude people, particularly as the example Adriana mentioned, um, LGBTQIA plus IA people. Um, The example that we use in the report is the the Smith and Chimashim versus the Knights of Columbus. This is a 2005 case from the BC Human Rights Tribunal. Basically, you had a lesbian couple that wanted to book the Knights Hall for their wedding. Uh, they didn't know the Knights of Columbus were a, a Catholic men's organization. The Knights of Columbus didn't know that two women wanted to have a, a wedding there. And when the Knights of Columbus found out, they canceled the, the booking and uh, refunded the deposit. This case sort of went its way to the Human Rights Tribunal. And basically um, the result was kind of a mixed result the Knights of Columbus didn't say they didn't discriminate. They argued that they did discriminate, but they had a bona fide, bona fide reason for doing so. Um, Section 8.1 of the Human Rights Code of British Columbia allows you to discriminate if you have a, a bona fide reason to do so. Uh, presumably, that's things like a bus driver can't be non-sighted, um, because that would be probably quite dangerous, or you know things like um you know uh, gender and sex requirements for children's sports activities you know under five girls soccer and that kind of thing um but the Knights of Columbus argued that they did discriminate and they were totally within their rights to do so um and then the two women involved were paid some compensation because obviously there was um costs and hardship involved in them having to change their wedding invitations and sort of you know individual hardship but what's interesting here is we have an organization that's overtly admitting to discriminating And that same organization received thousands of dollars from the city of Coquitlam um, in the form of permissive tax exemptions. So we were having trouble identifying the exact place of worship because since 2011, the city of Coquitlam, where this uh, place, where the Knights Hall is found, doesn't list out its permissive tax exemption recipients for places of worship. But in 2004 and 2005, the years um, surrounding this particular case, um, the city of Coquitlam gave $72,000 to the Archdiocese of Vancouver for five properties. And in 2005, they gave $75,000 to the Archdiocese of Vancouver. So here's an organization that in the BC Human Rights Tribunal has admitted to actively discriminating against LGBTQ plus people um, receiving a lot of money in subsidy in the form of permissive tax exemptions from the city of Coquitlam. And we actually have a precedent for this, by the way. Um, Some of you recall a few years ago, um, 2018, the Liberal government amended the rules around Canada summer jobs program um, and basically what this was was they placed a rule that said that applicants must declare that the organization does not actively work to infringe upon the human rights uh, in, to infringe upon human rights including access to abortion so there was some back and forth on this but the government basically determined that their Canada summer jobs program where you hire people to work for organizations like our own and we've full disclosure, have received amazing summer students, uh, summer researchers rather, including Adriana and our, our research team um, through this funding. But a recipient organization can't actively be working against to undermine basic human rights. And in 2019, 26 applicants were denied um, app- applications for the Canada Summer Jobs Program on this basis. And so if we extend the logic of that case to permissive tax exemptions, the idea is that the state can't discriminate. I um, mean, it can not discriminate by adding a few steps between itself and the discrimination. And as a result, anyone who receives a permissive tax exemption or a statutory tax exemption, it, in my opinion, and an opinion presented in the report, should follow the charter. They're welcome to not follow the charter, but they can't receive government subsidy um, if that's the case. There's another aspect too, which is worth mentioning, and this is kind of returning to this theme that we bring up in the report, which is that we have to have benefits tests. And one of the really important things is that we wouldn't have been aware of the discriminatory rental policies of the Knights of Columbus had no one applied there. So the two women involved, women involved weren't aware that Knights of Columbus were a Catholic organization. Had they been aware, they've said this themselves in media interviews, they wouldn't have applied there because they know that this is a potentially discriminatory organization. And so without a benefits test, there's a lot of tacit discrimination that occurs that we would be otherwise unaware of. So we have to ask tax exemption recipients, hey, Do you rent your hall to everybody or do you have restrictions on who you rent your hall to? And if they have restrictions and those restrictions violate the charter, they should not be receiving funding because then we are as a state violating the charter and we are funding discriminatory behaviors. That's, I think, one of the aspects of having really robust um, benefits tests. So a few other elements, and this one actually is particularly relevant today given COVID, and that is some recipients could be undermining public health or overtly breaking the law. So Again, this comes down to COVID aspects, but many sources have identified religious gatherings as having a high potential to serve as super spreader events. Uh, We have a page-long footnote in our report highlighting examples from across the world where places of worship have been directly linked to massive spreads in COVID. Um, The one example I would highlight here is the um, Xin Chengji I apologize for my pronunciation, um, Church of Jesus in Seoul, Korea, South Korea, um, which at one point was responsible for 36% of COVID cases in South Korea from having one mega church gathering. So the reason why places of, uh, of worship are particularly uh, risky super spreader locations um, is that they're enclosed spaces typically. You have large groups of people in close proximity. Um, they're there for a long time and they stay in one place. People are talking and singing, which of course, increases a chance of you spreading, I'm probably spraying my computer laptop screen as we speak as well. Um, And you have inconsistent mask wearing. Also given demographics and participation in organized religion, you also have older populations um, who are particularly at risk to to COVID. So, So given this, the government of British Columbia's health orders have included restrictions on public social gatherings and they've included religious gatherings in that category. And they proposed alternatives, you can have a zoom meeting, look at what we're doing right now, it's not hard. Um, and basically what the, the province has argued is that religious gatherings are social gatherings, they're particularly susceptible to spreading COVID, therefore they have been discontinued for the time being. Now couple of interesting points on this, um, and this is actually ongoing, and I keep updating my, uh, my news notifications because the case is being, it's jury right now, but a number of places of worship in British Columbia have challenged these regulations and have been uh, taking the provincial government to court for the right to potentially, I, I assume, imperil the safety and health of their parishioners. And these same places of worship that are challenging the rules and have overtly broken the rules um, have also received permissive and statutory tax exemptions. So for example, the Langley Riverside Cavalry Chapel received $11,997 in permissive tax exemptions from the township of Langley in 2019. They've been fined twice for violating COVID regulations, and they're currently charging the government uh, trying to challenge those regulations in court. The Emmanuel Covenant Reform Church, this is in Abbotsford, received $5,463 in permissive tax exemptions from that municipality in uh, 2019. Uh, and the Oakland's Bible chapter right here in Victoria um, they, again, also violated the rules. They received $4,257 from the city of Victoria. Um, these churches have been joined by a number of individuals and other places of worship challenging the rules. Now, the rules are. Cur- this case is currently subjury, so <laughs> Adrian and I and the research team are currently pushing refresh on our news notifications to find out what's going to happen. But basically, I think regardless of what happens, if the courts carve out a religious exemption or they don't, it really is irrelevant from the broader principle which is permissive and statutory tax exemptions are designed to support the work of organizations that benefit the community undermining breaking subverting health regulations designed to protect people from the spread of a deadly global pandemic is not supporting the public benefit and as such um we put forward this forward in the report that these 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 places of worship should not receive permissive tax exemptions moving forward and municipalities need to have benefits tests to ensure that they're not funding organizations that are directly undermining the law or health regulations. So a couple other points to bring up regarding concerns and issues around tax exemptions. Um, The next point is the issue of tax encroachment. So municipalities have a very limited pool and and way they can generate funds. They're not allowed to implement their own income taxes or to put taxes on products like wine or beer or marijuana. Um, Instead, they, they tend to only tax property. It's very limited, and there's also, you know, fees from licensing and that, that kind of thing. Um, And as a result, when you have statutory tax exemptions, which Adriana mentioned, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars, that encroaches on the pool of money that that municipalities can can tax. And when that happens, they have to find that money somewhere, and that means they have to raise taxes for other, other taxpayers and so this is really encroaching on on municipalities and we're talking about significant percentages of municipal budgets the city of Victoria has a limitation that says that permissive tax exemptions can be no more than 1.6 percent of their budget Um, similarly North Vancouver has a 0.6 percent cap on um, tax exemptions being a component of their budget so we're talking like about one percent of an entire municipal budget is being given away, um, or not collected rather, in the form of tax and permissive tax exemptions, that's a lot of money that has to be made up somewhere else. And it tends to be made up with by increasing the taxes for everyone else. And there's also the aspect of government municipal autonomy. Um, So as Adriana mentioned, statutory tax exemptions are automatic. They automatically apply to places of worship without any kind of check or control or oversight. And what that means is municipalities don't have the ability to prioritize Maybe it is the case that Parksville wants to give out tax exemptions to its local places of worship, but maybe it's not. Maybe they have other priorities. And so by making these tax exemptions automatic, municipalities lose a lot of autonomy and they already don't have a significant amount of autonomy. We argue in the report that the individuals that know the best about how to maximize the benefit for their community through tax policy are locally elected officials, not automatic regulations that just give away money. And there's some other concerns as well, how the, the the tax exemptions are applied. So the first one is really is duration. Adriana hinted at this as well. Um, the way the community charter or the Vancouver charter or the, uh, the provincial legislation around rural communities, excuse me, um, is resolved is basically permissive tax exemptions are granted for up to 10 years, and except there's a number of exceptions. Those are hospitals, seniors homes, schools, independent schools, and places of worship. Well, those recipients are granted them in perpetuity. And what we argue in the report is that including places of worship in that category is problematic. Um, and even having a category of automatic perpetual tax exemption is also uh, problematic, regardless of who gets it. Because it, it kind of ignores the fact that times change, situations change. A school was that was once a school gets rezoned and it's now condos or workspace. Um, but it's particularly the case with places of worship, because what you have is a situation where, you know, a, a place of worship could change denominations and go from being an inclusive place to being a small insular community. Um, a local place of worship could hire a new uh, preacher who could preach hate or discrimination and therefore exclude. Or a place of worship could just stop opening its doors to members of the public. It's important that we evaluate the continued ongoing benefits that, that tax recipients um provide because they might just change their practices a place of worship could run a soup kitchen every tuesday for five years and then stop running it and if that was their only form of public outreach then it may be the case that they're no longer providing a public benefit but only a benefit to their members and co-religionists and then one other point that's worth mentioning is the aspect of uh commercial operations so throughout all this conversation we had the assumption that that these places of worship and tax recipients are operating on a not-for-profit basis but this is not always the case A really good example is the example of the Central Baptist Church here in Victoria. In 2013, there was a conversation around Victoria's tax exemption policies. And it came to light that the Central Baptist Church of Victoria was operating a a parkade in downtown Victoria. And they were pulling in $105,000 a year in, in revenue from this parkade. And the place of worship argued basically that they needed the money to pay off the mortgage for their parkade, to pay for their staff, to pay for the security guard, and any money left over went to their ministry so that ministry is evangelizing and proselytizing to members of the community and so in essence what you have in this situation is the permissive tax exemptions that this place of worship was receiving are subsidizing their outreach and their outreach is a form of proselytizing so the state is funding and subsidizing religious proselytizing which is not a position the state should be in it violates fundamentally the principle of separation of religion and government So those are some of the concerns that we have um, around permissive tax exemptions. And as Adriana mentioned, we're not talking about small amounts of money. You know, we calculated statutory tax exemptions in 2019 to be around $45.9 million and uh, permissive tax exemptions to be $12.5 million. These are significant percentages of municipal budgets, and it averages out to about $12 per person in British Columbia. But one thing I was going to encourage people to do was to check out the report because we break it down by municipality. So you can see just what how much of your personal tax dollars are going to subsidizing places of worship in your municipality. Some places it's zero, some places it's, it's almost, I think $46. Is at Vanderhoof? Um, you get a lot of a lot of money is going to subsidizing places of worship, and they may not provide a benefit to the public uh, that's publicly accessible. So overall, what are our recommendations? And I'm excited to hear some people's questions as well. Um, So we recommend two things principally. The first one is abolishing statutory tax exemptions. So these tax exemptions, as I've mentioned several times, they're automatic. And because they're automatic, there's no oversight. There are no mechanisms in place to ensure that people who are receiving tax exemptions um, are actually providing a benefit to the community. And so we think municipalities are in the best position to do that and because their tax base is being encroached upon and their autonomy is being limited, and because we need oversight for these tax exemptions, we recommend that statutory tax exemptions be abolished. But we also recognize that, as as Adriana started this conversation with, tax exemptions are a tool that municipalities and government can use to support and, and help foster activities that benefit the community. But it's important that you have oversight. And so our second recommendation is that municipalities adopt and apply uh, rigorous benefits tests for PTE recipients. And, And what this means is basically, first of all, that all permissive tax exemption recipients are treated equally. So if you have a five year application window, everybody applies for five years. You don't give a special time exemption for certain recipients. We also recognize that that has to be balanced out right so having like an annual reporting requirement might be onerous on small organizations, but having it every you know five year application. That that's also we think that's also quite fine you know it's okay to say to make a group apply every five years to explain the benefits they provide the community because they are receiving tens of thousands of dollars in tax exemptions. I've spent more time writing a grant for $300 to build a little free library in my park than some municipal tax exemption applications. And to me, that's absurd. It's also very irresponsible from the perspective of municipalities who we would hope would be treating our tax dollars with respect um, and not you know, and having zero oversight. And then just just to highlight sort of the components of the permissive tax exemption policy and and the the, the BC humanist association will be drafting some sample policies in the near future that will circulate to municipalities. um, In case they would like to adopt them, but these kinds of benefits tests have to include such elements as um, not operating a commercial enterprise, or if they do having restrictions on how much profit they can make an absence of discrimination, an absence of criminal activity, an absence of support for health codes, um, and basically uh, several checks and balances to ensure that permissive tax exemption and statutory tax exemption recipients are not operating as private clubs, they're not being discriminatory, they're not excluding people, and they are not undermining public health. Um, And we think if municipalities do that, they would be able to support organizations that provide a benefit to the community. They would be able to save tax dollars from going to organizations that might violate their duty to uphold the Canadian Charter. Um, And they would have the ability to make decisions to allocate tax dollars in their municipality in such a way as it maximizes the benefit for their community without having these imposed automatically through statute. Uh, So with that, I'll throw it. We'll throw to questions. Thank you all very much for your patience. I think we always recognize that sometimes tax policy can get quite dense, but um, I think it's very helpful to explore some of the nuance and how we can try to make our society Um, better, more equal, to strengthen the separation of religion and government through how we apply our taxes. I do want to mention one thing which I forgot to mention at the beginning, which is um, the the numbers that we got to calculate statutory tax exemptions. Um, We pooled our money with the Voters Without Religion and Canadian Atheists to buy that data um, because there were some data requirements and we had to to put money forward. So a huge thank you to those amazing people for um, helping support that. Um, We are a small organization. As Emily mentioned, your donations go a very long way. um, And uh, buying data is often very challenging so we're really grateful for our our friends for helping us support us in that way Um, and you can see all the raw data in the report as well. So with that I'll stop rambling and I appreciate your attentiveness um, and we'll throw to questions and we already have some in the chat. Uh, So Adrienne if you want to pop on there you and I can sort of just um, we can just figure out who would like to answer what. Um, I'll read the first one here though. Um, My question uh, and uh, yes so my question is do you know if the group that said must attend prayer service actually turned out turn someone away because of that, Um, it does not, it's not an excuse. um, But yeah, the question is, like, did they actually send someone away? Yeah, this is a really good question. So I haven't had a chance to dig too much into the pray and stay policy. Um, My understanding is there's two things at play. There's the first, which is, I doubt they would turn someone, I would hope they wouldn't turn someone away on a cold day, uh, because that person was maybe uncomfortable participating in a religious ceremony. Um, But there's this asset aspect of tacit exclusion, where basically, you know, you're know, you forcing people to participate in a religious service to get um, affordable housing. And in, in the Parksville case, in the Prayan State case, which is really interesting is the city of Parksville discontinued their shelter service. And so the church stepped in to fill a void, which is good. But at the same time, by having a religious requirement, they were potentially excluding people or basically forcing people to receive to, to participate in their religion to receive a service. So I can't speak about whether anyone was actually excluded, but there's a deeper principle at stake, which is if you have a service that's publicly funded, it has to be publicly accessible. And it can't just be for Christians only or people who are willing to put up with a Christian ceremony to to receive that service. I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, Adriana. Nope.
1: You know <laughs> awesome. more about it than I do.
2: I took a deep dive into that case. It was fascinating. And by the way, and this is actually just a way that you as members and members of the public can support our research efforts. <coughs> if you find cases like that, send them our way. We're always, we have a, a growing research team, and we're always happy to look into those cases to to learn more and to see whether there are some serious issues of, of separation of religion and government and the erosion thereof involved. Um, There's another question in the chat, and I think um, if anyone else does have a question, you can raise your hand with the emoji thing or just put your name in the chat here. Um, The question was, do you know if other provinces are set up in the same way? Um, I don't actually know. Adriana, you've been looking at a lot of um, municipalities across the province. Have you noticed any across the country for our other project? Have you noticed anything um, in other places?
1: I have not at all.
2: Yeah, we, we haven't, we, we've um, expanded our mandate a little bit recently, <laughs> expanding our legislative prayer research across the country, but we've tended to focus in British Columbia. What I will say is that there are clergy residency exceptions. I know you were looking at those, Adriana, uh, federally, where we provide exemptions to certain residences of um, members of various religious groups, um, which, is, which is given specifically to groups that have religious backgrounds. Um, and I know that many municipalities do have tax exemptions or places of worship. So, I mean, I've been looking at some of the historical aspect of this, and I know that it's quite common uh, to have tax exemptions or places of worship. I know England and the United States all have these kinds of exemptions. Um, in the United States, they have lots of exemptions or places of worship, and a lot of donations to places of worship are tax exempt. There's a lot of ways that the state directly and indirectly subsidizes operations. But I can't speak to any, um, I can't speak to the municipal charters and other provinces directly, you know. Any other questions? Oh, I think Darwin has a question possibly. Um, if we could unmute him, that would be excellent. Oh, he's typed it in here. Perfect. Okay. So what do you expect from this report being out there? Do you think anyone will pay attention to it? What's next? Great question. Um, I, I, don't, I don't want to hog the floor here. Adriana, do you want to jump into that one first? Uh,
1: sure. Um, well, I think I, first off, I think ideally, um, one, raising knowledge that permissive tax exemptions exist and statutory tax exemptions exist because um, if you had asked me like a year ago before I got into all of this, I would have had no idea whatsoever. Um, I think additionally as well, especially um, as Teal highlighted, um, given that there are groups um, that are violating COVID measures, I think now's, I think a really, I think, prime time to be paying attention to this because, um, you know, I mean, even though it's not necessarily as exciting, always as exciting, um, you know, taxes and tax exemptions do matter. It's, um, you know, they do provide like resources and support these organizations. So,
2: um, yeah. I'll just, I'll build on that. Um, so the, the way that this report came about is actually, it's the second iteration of our broader, I guess I could call it the story arc of our research um, on, on tax exemptions. So the original document was an informative document that was just the facts on what are permissive tax exemptions? What are the numbers? Um, and we send that to every municipal councillor in the province as part of our um, lobbying efforts around the Uni- Union of British Columbia municipalities that had a, a meeting in November And one of the items on the agenda, which didn't get voted upon, unfortunately, was from a councillor in a municipality whose name has left my brain. um, But it was to change the statutory tax exemption policy in B.C. So we were doing lobbying around that. And so that was the first step. This report is sort of the second step. And as Adriana mentioned, it's a really important time to discuss it because, you know, it really I feel like it makes sense to people when you say, oh, permissive tax before covid if you said oh you know places of worship don't necessarily provide a public benefit many people would disagree with you until you brought up very specific examples now we see very overt examples of places that aren't just not providing a public benefit but they may actually be undermining fundamentally our efforts to fight a global pandemic so i think it's really important that we highlight that um and then our next step is a broader report so there's three things that the next report's going to include um one of them is a sample policy a lot of municipalities. Um, could benefit from our advice i was going through every single municipal um, benefits test if they have one in the entire province we have them all in a document we've been you know collating them all um, and so we're going from that we're going to develop a good sample policy or a couple of different policy options that municipalities can adopt the second thing is a more historical analysis because um, i think kinda, it kind of speaks to the question that someone asked about like how does it work in other provinces um, we have this perception that tax policy is never changing or it doesn't change that often, but there's been some dramatic changes, particularly in the world of permissive tax exemptions in places of worship. Um, my favorite example is that there was a tree in downtown Victoria that was tax exempt for a while because people met underneath it to pray for a while, more than a hundred years ago. So we're going to have an historical analysis section. And then the other category will be taking a deeper dive into the arguments around permissive tax exemptions and doing more analysis on, uh, how do you craft good policy around it? So one of the things that we weren't able to do for this report, and may not be possible given limitations on data, is understanding questions like, okay, uh, this place of worship received a permissive tax exemption, and that place of worship received a permissive tax exemption. This one has 10,000 parishioners, this one has 10, but they receive the same amount of money. How do we adjudicate that in the context of good, sound public policy? So there's some other aspects we're going to include. That report's a couple months away, but it'll be a much bigger report. One of our Big monsters, um, lots of data, and you know a combination of philosophy and, and quantitative analysis and policy analysis that the BCHA research team is known for. <laughs> uh, there's another question here. Uh, did you consider getting in taxpayer association involved? Uh, no, we hadn't actually. And that's a great recommendation. Um, this project's been excuse me has been ongoing for a few years, and so we're, we're kind of building step by step. So. I, I like that idea of involving more taxpayers associations and uh, linking up with other groups. So that's something we'll look into. Thank you. That's a, that's a good recommendation.
0: Do we have any other questions from anybody before
2: we wrap up? Write that one down. That's actually good. I, I do want to sort of build onto this question of like, um, I'll, I'll vamp for a second if people want to think of questions, because I want to return to, I think it was Darwin's original que- or Jack's, Jack's question, uh, Jake's question. Sorry, Jake. Um, just sort of exploring the idea of like, tied and linked aid. One of the things that I think came up a lot in this report when we're trying to explore like what constitutes a public benefit is the question of is like, is proselytizing a public benefit? Is spreading religion a public benefit? And for the longest time, and in a lot of historical tax cases, there was the tacit assumption that spreading religion, education, were benefits to society in general, and therefore it should be subsidized by the state. And it was only like, for example, in the early days of Victoria, where you have tension between Catholics and Protestants around linguistic lines and new new, um, immigrants coming into the province, where these issues kind of came to a head, where people started realizing that, you know, yes, spreading, well, well, the assumption that spreading religion was a good thing worked really well when everyone had the same religion. But suddenly when you have a more diverse community, you suddenly realize that Oh, you're also spreading someone else's religion um and that kind of led to some changes in, in policy historically and what's interesting there is you know, we as a society have to decide if we think it's okay to subsidize the marketing and outreach of of any organization um particularly organizations you know that are places of worship and i think that's that's something that we have to consider and i think one of the reasons why we're really pushing the aspect um around this policy in particular is we, we don't we don't think it should just be taken for granted the, the assumption that a place of worship provides a public benefit is not assumption that we should make without reflecting on it properly. Um, and Jack just, or Jake sorry Jake, um, Jake, just mentioned, yes, like what about homeless Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, non-believers? Yeah, exactly. Those people may still want to sleep in a church in Parksville, for example, and they might even put up with the religious, the minimal religious ceremony, to use air quotes. Um, but by the same token, it doesn't put them in a very fair situation. And yes, private organizations like a church can run a pray and stay program. The bigger question is not whether they can run that program. The bigger question is, should it receive subsidy from the state? Because you can set up your own private club and have a sign that says, no, insert this group of people you don't like allowed. And while we might judge that group for being bigoted, and they probably are, Um, At the end of the day, they're allowed to do that. But if they've received subsidy from the state or if they are the state or a proxy of the state, that would not be appropriate in my mind for them to exclude people on on the base on charter basis. Uh, Barbara has a good question here, and i throw this one to Tajron as well. I don't want to be rambling as much as uh, hogging all the, the chat time. But uh, her question is, how can we educate and spread the word about this issue? Um, that's a really good question, and um, I can jump in first, and Adrian, if you want to add anything as well. Um, the first thing that we do as an organization is, is collecting the research. I'm a big fan of doing good research on topics and then using that research to inform decision makers. Um, the second thing I would suggest would be to look at your own municipality. One of the benefits of the strategy that we've adopted here is that there are 161 municipalities across British Columbia. And yes, some of them will be recalcitrant and have you know, refused to implement good tax policy, but a lot of them will change. And we've saw this with our municipal prayer report where we found you know, more than 20 municipalities across British Columbia had prayer in the municipal council meetings. When we informed them that that was no longer cons- acceptable from a constitutional perspective, a lot of them were like, oh, we didn't know. Thank you for letting us know, we'll change our policy. So one of our hopes with spreading the information about the the topic uh, and and our research is that we'll just inspire more municipalities who are cash strapped and seeing their tax base eroded to adopt good policies. Um, But you as an individual can also step up. So apart from supporting the BCHA, smash that like and subscribe button, etc. The other thing you can do is you can write to your municipality and ask them what their current policies are. So Barbara, if I can ask, if you don't feel comfortable sharing, that's all right. But which municipality do you live in? I can give the example here I'm, I'm i live here in saanich and we have very we don't have a benefits test we have very light application processes oh go ahead barbara
0: sorry i'm in the west end in vancouver
2: Uh right yeah so vancouver interestingly enough um i don't think they give out permissive tax exemptions for places of worship so they, they do have statutory exemptions um but i think and adriana you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think vancouver was one of the places that had stes but not ptes is that
1: right I don't recall. Let me just take a look. we
2: can check that one in the report. Um, but yeah, so I think you might be in luck in that case, Barbara, which means I think very little of your tax dollars, apart from the statutory tax exemptions, are going to places of worship. Uh, do you have it up there, Adriana? Yeah, zero
1: NPTs.
2: Yeah, there you go. So you you in that case, Barbara, can can inspire your friends and neighbors in adjoining municipalities to step up and change their policies. Um, but yeah, and what we one thing you'll notice in the report and I should mention this, is we we got as much data as we could. The numbers that Adrian and I were giving you for statute, for permissive tax exemptions are low because a number of places, uh, municipalities do provide permissive tax exemptions, but they don't separate them out by category. So, for example, um, Port Coquitlam, as I mentioned, doesn't cite the exact number of the PTEs that they offer each year. So we couldn't include that in the study. They do give them. We know they give them to at least 30 places of worship um, from what we can see historically, but we just don't know the exact number. Um, Yeah, so but yeah, so basically the other thing you can do is you can write your municipalities and ask them what their policies are. And if those policies are found wanting, work with your councillors and council to try and improve them. And we think that most municipalities would want to adopt these policies. We're not attacking religion. What we're saying in this case is we would like municipalities to adopt responsible policies that allow them to give away or not collect tax dollars in a way that's fair, that's equitable, that has oversight. Um, And some very basic categories. And like I said, you know, if I had to jump through hoops and write a six page application to apply for less than $500 to build a little free library, um, when we're giving away $70,000 to a place of worship, the least that we could ask them to do is to fill out an application that asks whether they discriminate, whether they run a private company or whether they are a private club. Uh, There's another question in here. Um, uh, No, without praying, would you put up with that? yeah so i think i think what, what jake's talking about is the aspect of like forced religion to me if someone wants to run an after-school program that is proselytizing towards people i would have personal problems with that but there's very little you could do to stop that um uh, but what you shouldn't do is it shouldn't receive state funding so i think that, that to me is the distinction that's made here so like the back to the praying stay example um Yeah, it would be okay. I think it would be great actually if if places of worship open their doors to provide housing for people experiencing homelessness, but if there's any strings attached that's unacceptable in my mind. Um, Because then you're basically holding housing ransom as a means of coercing someone into following your religion. Um, It's the whole principle of you know, you got to listen to a sermon before you get your food. Um, You have necessarily a course of captive audience. And I think that's not very reasonable to say the least. I would probably use stronger language to describe it as being quite reprehensible, actually, because you're basically using the course of powers of housing or food to force someone to follow your religion, which seems very, very wrong. Um, some other people are typing questions, so I'll go to more questions um, or any other, any other thoughts people want to share. I think what Jake's talking about, though, just to to return to this point, it's not an attack on religion, it's uh, it's trying to correct forced religion. And that's, I think, one of the fundamental things that the BCHA has been working on, whether it's like uh, our issues around legislative prayer. The issue with legislative prayer is that you have the state endorsing prayer as a thing, and that's not okay. And in this case, what you have is the state endorsing religion without any kinds of checks and balances to ensure that there's a public benefit available to all. And yeah, there's an element of, of coercion there, which is not acceptable.
0: Do we
2: have any more questions from anyone? Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Yeah. And, and thanks, Darman, uh, for your comments as well. Yeah, we will we, we'll just v- very briefly while people are thinking of questions or typing them. We'll just mention that uh, just before we wrap up the BCHA research team is, is doing a lot of other projects. So now that we've wrapped this one up, we have launched a project on crisis pregnancy centers and um, maternity homes which you will hear from us about uh, at one of our future meetings once we've uh, wrapped up the research on that. Uh, uh, Adrienne and I um, and Adrienne has been doing all the heavy lifting on this and I have to applaud her for it um, have been doing a a massive survey of every municipality in the country with a population of over a thousand to see if they're in compliance with the Saguenay decision um, which means that you can't have prairie municipal council meetings and we have a series of reports based on each province coming out as well as a a um, comprehensive report that we'll be presenting to a conference this summer um, about the overall uh, number of of municipalities in the country that that violate Saginaw. And then we have a whole bunch of other projects that we're working on. I have to look at my notes for some of the other ones. Everything from coming up with um, secular invocations to additional work on clergy residency, places of residency and tax exemptions. Um, So stay tuned for a lot more of exciting research. And like I mentioned in the middle of my my comments, if you have an issue you notice, um, send it over to us. We can add it to our whiteboard. The whiteboard is vast, it's always growing. And we're always adding um, issues that we can look into and our team has been growing. We're bringing in more people to help with the research team, and that's always appreciated as well. As well as some of you have been helping uh, Adriana transcribe prayers for our municipal prayer project, which I very much appreciate. That's a great form of citizen science.
0: Field, there's another event they can find you at pretty soon, right?
2: Oh, there is actually. Yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, do you have the, the date on that? Because it's, it's not in my notes.
0: <laughs> oh, I no, I thought you would know it. I don't have it. Know
2: oh dear. Um, It'll be there's... in the
0: newsletter, though.
2: Check the newsletter. I'm giving a talk for the Canadian humanists um, on our municipal uh, prayer research. So I'll be talking about some of the overall results that we found there and uh, spoiler alert. Um, and again, this is mostly Adriana heavily doing all this, like the legwork on this. We found huge differences between the provinces. So like in British Columbia, there's lots of prayer in, in municipal council meetings and inaugural meetings. It's different in Quebec. It's different in Ontario. There's weird practices on the prairies. Um, so we're finding some really interesting stuff. So the discussion section of that project and report will be will be interesting, to say the least. And that should be coming up. I think it's at the end of the month. Um, it's, a, it's a Sunday okay. at the end of the month. Sure. Yeah, if I've, It's written down somewhere, so I immediately forgot it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I get that. Um, but yeah, I wanted to thank you and Adriana for taking so much time out of your day to like break down this very complex report for us and for producing this report for everyone. Um, Cause it's it's got some pretty remarkable findings. Uh, I think everyone, I was pretty surprised to know that uh, this like there's millions of dollars going to churches in BC. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you everyone who came tonight. Um, and I hope you have a great rest of your night, everyone.
1: Thank you all. We'll see you at the next one, friends.
0: Bye.